Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current developments in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Masaaki Yamabe, who will tell us about new coolants for the environment. Also, we'll find out what's the largest island in the world. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Lane. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Not too bad. Not too bad, Charles. How are you doing? Well, it's a, it's a good week for science, as always, and so uh, I'm doing great. Wow. Every week, science wins. You know, science... We all win. Science is the big pick-me-up, you know. I used to take uh, amphetamines and uh, caffeine, but now I rely on science. Just science. Just science. Man, you are the man of the world. So here's something I've been wanting to ask. Uh, have you had any good shrimps lately? The best type of shrimp that I've had is... The New Orleans crawfish. Oh, uh, the New Orleans crawfish. That's pretty good, too. But uh, if you're interested in shrimps, there's uh, some interesting I'm... work carrying out with, with shrimps biologists here at Berkeley, uh, Roy Caldwell. Roy Caldwell, okay. I'm perpetually interested in shrimps, so anything you have to say about it... About shrimps. Is shrimps. So remember last week we were talking about fluorescence and how great it is, right? <laughs> yes, I do. Well, now we can talk about fluorescent shrimps. Fluorescent shrimp. Yeah. Wow. Good stuff, huh? So are these shrimp that have green fluorescence protein in it, or? So if you shine blue light onto it, uh-huh. it'll glow uh, yellow green. Ooh. Why on earth would we need fluorescent shrimps? That's a very good question, and that's what Caldwell and his colleagues are trying to find out. And it was actually discovered uh, accidentally when they were uh, undersea diving in the Bahamas that these shrimps would glow when they had ultraviolet light shine on them. And it turns out that even at such depths, these shrimps could see each other because of the fluorescence. Oh, I see. So basically they're signaling each other to know where right. they all are. It could be a signal for uh, or mating or attacking or you know, whatever other uh, thing they're trying to communicate to each other. Oh, interesting. But don't don't they let the uh, their predators know where they are then by lighting up like that? That's the other thing. Uh, it turns out that they have very, very sophisticated eyes ah. that allow them to... Uh, see at these frequencies that most animals cannot. Oh, okay. So they can see each other, but uh, the predators can. Right. Very cool. So uh, uh, what use, I guess, is this going to be in terms of studying these shrimps or, or utilizing their fluorescence? Well, I don't think there are any immediate uses for this fluorescent, but it certainly does bring better understanding to how deep-sea creatures can communicate with each other and their sophisticated visual systems. It's basically just saying, well, we have uh, sophisticated... uh, Right. Humans are not the only ones that have sophisticated eyes. And uh, I think they're trying to suggest that some of these animals have up to eight type of cones. We have three cones, Right. right? 
for red, green, and blue, but they may have up to eight. Ooh. Supposedly have super sensitive uh, visual systems. Who would have thought? I guess I'm going to have to give up eating shrimp now. <laughs> yeah, more respect for them now, huh? Yeah, well. <laughs> so I guess if you want to know more, uh, this is a recent article in the, uh, the UC Berkeley News. All right, well, that story was very shocking. And fishy, shrimps. or shrimpy, I guess. Yes, indeed. But uh, here's a story which might uh, just shock you to find out. I like being shocked. Well, uh, if electroshock is a cup of tea, but uh, as it turns out, astrophysicists now are striking a blow to how lightning might actually be formed. You mean uh, you have to go into the, uh, the stars to find this out now? <laughs> well, it turns out that a certain astrophysicist uh, happened to become interested in this problem. He moved to Florida, one of the largest regions where lightning strikes. So this fellow, Joseph Dwyer, became interested in this problem of how is actually mm-hmm. is lightning being formed. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the conventional wisdom is that you have this huge electric field that builds up in the atmosphere right. that just suddenly discharges, and that's right. what creates the uh, lightning. Uh-huh. But they've shown that there's these huge gamma ray and X-ray bursts that occur concomitant with lightning bursts. Oh, really? So it turns out, based on his calculations, that if you do have these huge X-ray and gamma ray bursts, that dissipates way too much energy to uh, prevent any electric field from actually sparking a lightning bolt. Okay, so does this bring some doubts into the current theories? That's what it's doing. It's saying that this theory of an electric field buildup might not account for how lightning is actually uh, being formed. Does he have an alternative suggestion? Uh, he doesn't really, but basically he's just saying that any kind of electric field based on water molecules rubbing up against each other to create an electric field is going to be limited by this expenditure of X-ray and gamma-ray bursts, so there must be some other source of current that's producing. Hmm. So he doesn't think that the gamma rays are a result of the, uh, the lightning zipping through the atmosphere and then like super exciting the other molecules? Apparently not. So uh, if anyone's interested in uh, knowing this or preventing, I guess, being shocked by lightning somehow, uh, you can take a look. This is in the recent edition of the Geophysical Research Letters. All right, so I got more shocking news for you. So what do you do to uh, clean your emissions? Usually uh, toilet paper, Kleenex is pretty good. Well, I'm talking about diesel fuel emissions. Well, same thing. What about something uh, a bit more shocking, like, say, high-voltage current? So it turns out some scientists at MIT are uh, trying to find a solution to clean out the uh, emissions from diesel fuel. Okay, people have been trying to do this for a long time. Right, but uh, the deadline's coming up. The U.S. has some sort of mandate that by 2007, the emissions from diesel vehicles should be a lot cleaner. And uh, the main culprit here is uh, nitrous oxide, which comes from emissions. And so that's the main source of some greenhouse gas atmosphere? Uh, This is that brown smog that comes out. Oh, okay. Noxious gas. Um, I have noxious gas emitting from myself, too. Maybe you want to use some uh, lightning or something. (laughs) And oddly enough, the the government hasn't imposed any restrictions on that. And gamma rays. (laughs) Yeah. But what... Daniel Cohn and his team at the Plasma Science and Fusion Center at MIT are trying to do is develop a, a catalyst exhaust treatment system. They use high-voltage electro- electrical currents that produces plasma, and it uh, reduces the uh, nitrous oxide emissions. Turns it into nitric oxide or something? Well, it prevents it from being formed in the oh, first I see, place. I see, okay. So this plasma basically uh, partially oxidizes the fuel, so when it goes to the complete burning, you have much less nitrous oxide formed. Okay, acting as a catalyst to prevent these sorts right. of things. Right, and uh, previously they used thermal catalysts just heating it up, but mm-hmm. that apparently didn't work as well, so using a electrical discharge is much more efficient, and they get up to 90% reduction in these uh, nitrous oxides. Wow, shocking. Quite shocking. So uh, if anyone wants to know more, this was actually reported in a recent issue of The Alchemist. Turning gas into gold. Mm. 
a story which may not be quite as shocking as the last two, but at least somewhat stunning. Wow, another zinger, eh? It's something of a zinger. It has to do with drugs, oddly enough. Ah. <laughs> more, more specifically, a polio vaccine. See, I thought we got rid of polio a long time ago. Apparently polio has not quite been eradicated yet. It still exists in seven countries in Africa and Asia. Well, that's not good. Yes, uh, but doctors are getting uh, to the point where they're hoping to eradicate polio by the year 2007. Complete eradication. Complete eradication. Oddly enough, at the same time, where we're supposed to eradicate all diesel, diesel fuel emissions. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, researchers are quite worried about this because they know for a fact that a polio vaccine, which is actually a live polio virus, uh-huh. can mutate and become an infectious form again. And Don't they all? Yes, indeed. So they're worried that if you stop using this polio virus, then in fact the polio virus could resurface in populations, right. and we could have a reemergence of this right. disease. And so a uh, recent work by uh, Vadim Egel of the Moscow State University actually examined this in Russia, where they looked at a region of the former Soviet Union where the vaccination was actually halted between 1963 and 1966, mm-hmm. and they showed that there was actually, in fact, a uh, 37% reemergence of poliovirus in oh. unvaccinated children. That's not good. So it's just uh, further evidence and more results that are saying that you have to be careful as we wean the population off. We need to do it in a systematic kind of way. I see. So there are a number of suggestions out there right now where they're saying you can actually do pulse vaccinations where you just give a bolus to a huge population and that actually will keep the virus attenuated. You can't just go cold turkey, essentially, is what they're saying. Do you think this model can also be used for other types of uh, diseases? Probably it's it's going to be a a method for uh, all sorts of diseases. I think people have been doing this for uh, smallpox as well. Right. Supposedly it's gone. Right. Well, what I've heard is there's two vials left somewhere in the world, one at the CDC and the other Perhaps Russia or some other yeah. country has it for uh, bioweapons purposes. Right. <laughs> Hopefully that's all there is. And yeah, but we have the sequence of the, those two. Uh, yeah. So in theory, we could always synthesize the virus de novo. <laughs> Craig Venner can do it, right? Yeah, well, he's apparently God now. <laughs> so if anyone's interested in learning about the emergence of poliovirus, you can look at the Journal of Virology, Volume 77. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to here on 90.7 FM. In a few moments, we'll be joined by Dr. Masaaki Yamabe to talk about new refrigerants that are safer for the ozone. So stay tuned. used for refrigerants. 
They are not without their drawbacks, and they are linked to the depletion of the ozone layer. Well, joining us today on Berkeley Rocks is Dr. Masaaki Yamabe, who will tell us his efforts to improve halogenated products. He is currently the Vice President of the Chemical Society of Japan, and he is the Director of the Florence Center at the National Institute of Advanced Industrial Science and Technology in Tsukuba, Japan. In 1997, he was awarded the Best of the Best Stratospheric Ozone Protection Award from the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, Dr. Yamabe, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. Perhaps we can begin with a brief introduction on fluorine chemistry. In 1928, the United States, Dr. Mitche invented the first fluorinated compound, useful, very useful for the uh, refrigerant, in place of SO2, sulfur dioxide, sulfur dioxide. or ammonia, natural mm -hmm. refrigerant, very toxic. And uh, this new compound, dichlorodifluoromethane, CCL2F2, is uh, excellent property for the refrigeration and non-toxic. And uh, so this, uh, and uh, following this uh, this invention, a variety of chlorofluorocarbons were also invented in Japan and commercialized. Mm -hmm. And the, the examples are safe. So we usually use the code number, <laughs> not for, instead of the chemical structure, chemical I mean, nomenclature. But anyway, CCL3, C, C, CCL3F, CFC11 for the prolongation uh, mm -hmm. of the polymer, for example, polyurethane. Right. And uh, CFC 12, dichlorodifluoromethane for the refrigeration uh, or automobile or refrigerator. Anyway, any con air conditioning. And uh, another example of the CFC is CFC 113. This is a trichlorodifluoromethane. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's for the uh, excellent cleaning agent. Cleaners. So yeah. for the uh, in the microelectronics industry. And uh, so we have been enjoying those newly developed CFCs or fluorine chemicals in industry. Okay, and uh, in and in the beginning of 1980s, the worldwide production of those CFC compounds reached million ton, a million ton. Okay, so big market. And when did people first realize that these halogenated compounds could have adverse effects on the environment? In 1974, Professor Charles Roland and postdoctoral fellow Mario Molina of the University, UC University of California, Irvine, okay. presented a paper in the annual meeting of American Chemical Society. Those non-toxic, excellent gas mm. CFCs will destroy the ozone layer in the stratospheric, stratospheric uh, atmosphere. atmosphere, high above the air. This is this is a quite surprise for the chemical industry or for the industry. We never noticed that. This mm -hmm. is just a hypothesis. Okay. So they, uh, at that moment in 1975 or 1980, nobody easily believed that this is just a hypothesis. We didn't have no evidence, no evidence of, the, of destroying the ozone, la ozone layer has been destroyed by the uh, CFCs. But those uh, two, Sheryl Roland, Sheryl professors, Sheryl Roland and Marie Molina, gave us the uh, evidence of destroying ozone molecules by the uh, CFC molecules okay? Okay. in the laboratory. So the uh, scientists, for example, in NASA, uh, started to 
investigate what is happening in the stratosphere, the concentration of CFCs or the concentration of the ozone, ozone layer. And uh, you know, in 1984, all the science or the uh, government of the United Nations uh, recognized the actual yes. decrease of ozone concentration in the stratosphere, and uh, which has been triggered by the activation of CFCs by the very strong UV light in the stratosphere. The UV light triggers the uh, scission of the bond, bond, CCL bond, not CF. Right. Okay, chlorofluorocarbons have the CCL bond and CF. CF bond is very strong, not especially easy, but the CCL bond is easily broke, and uh, the excited chlorine molecule will trigger the decomposition of ozone molecule. This is a chain reaction. One excited chlorine molecule can destroy 10,000 or 100,000 ozone molecules. So the worldwide consensus has been made. We have to protect the ozone layer and we should stop producing CFCs. Okay? Okay. And in 1987, the United Nations or the Montreal Protocol, International Treaty, Montreal Protocol, has been ratified. and. Uh, Worldwide, we uh, decided to stop production of CFCs in the developed, developed countries mm-hmm. by the end of 1995. So, what happened in industry since, since that? So, the chemists or scientists or researchers in industry or universities uh, in foreign chemistry have to had to develop alternatives of CFCs, the same properties and uh, much more environmentally friendly. So, this is a very big challenge for the chemists. And uh, we foreign chemists succeeded to develop a variety of alternative CFCs. So some of those uh, possible candidates are HCFCs, hydrochlorofluorocarbon, or HFCs, a hydrofluorocarbon. Oh, with no chlorine. HCFC possesses chlorine, hydrochlorofluorocarbon. So the principle of the development development of the alternatives is introduce hydrogen in the molecule mm-hmm. cause the uh, CFCs have a very long atmospheric lifetime. So the, those CFC compound does not destroy, not, was not destroyed in, up in the uh, stratosphere? No, just a uh, yeah. short lifetime cannot get to the... Yeah. To, oh. uh, just a long, li- long lifetime so that uh, those molecules can diffuse gradually up to the uh, stratosphere. So those CFCs are not destroyed in the troposphere, very stable. But if we can introduce hydrogen atom in the molecule, the CH bond will be attacked by the OH radical present in the troposphere. So the atmospheric lifetime, lifetime of those molecules uh, will, be, will become much shorter. The CFC's lifetime is more than 180 or 100 or mm. years. Yeah. Or 1175. 75, 80 mm. or something. Mm. Mm. Longer than 50 years old. Mm. 50 years or something. Mm. So long lifetime. But if we can introduce hydrogen, mm-hmm. the atmospheric lifetime will be much more shorter. shorter. Mm. For example, 5 to 10 years. Those compounds cannot come up to the stratosphere because during the, uh, when that happens through the uh, troposphere, those companies will be destroyed by the OH radical. Okay. okay.
almost ruined chemical produce manufacturing. Manufacturers uh, stopped to produce CFCs and started to produce uh, uh, much more environmentally friendly HCFCs and HFCs. Okay. This is a very good success story written in this uh, industry genius. But another problem was raised. We have two serious problems in global environment. One is the depletion of ozone layer. Mm-hmm. This, was, this will be solved by introducing the new alternative CFCs. But among the, those alternative CFCs, uh, alternative CFCs, for example, hydrofluorocarbon, this is a uh, shorter lifetime, but very high, some of those compounds, some of HFCs, hydrofluorocarbon, shows uh, rather high global warming potential. Greenhouse gas. Greenhouse gas. Greenhouse gas. Mm. <laughs> so now we ratified the Montreal Protocol in 1985-87. Just after 10 years, in 1997, we ratified another protocol, Kyoto Protocol, to, to reduce the global warming g- g- greenhouse gases. And there are six greenhouse gases mm-hmm. uh, defined at that time. The major greenhouse gas is carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Another five is my rather minor, but uh, anyway, three high, three fluorine containing gases, HFC, PFC, parafluorocarbon. PFC does not have any hydrogen, very long lifetime. And SF6, sulfur hexafluoride. Right. Okay. This is very important for the industry. Mm-hmm. Anyway, these three fluorinated greenhouse gas. So the uh, uh, so that uh, our research center is now doing scientific research how to how to develop the alternative technology to the those greenhouse gases, mm-hmm. HFCs, PFCs, and SFCs. So next generation. Next generation. Next generation of fluorinated chemicals I mean, mm-hmm. for the. Uh, Sustainable society. So that is a very long but simple story of uh, what we are doing. Okay. So you, you believe you'll find a solution within our lifetimes. Lifetime. Yeah. That that satisfied um, the requirements for um, for the ozone layer as well as for the greenhouse gas. So the most uh, critical property of those chemical compounds is the atmospheric lifetime. Right. Okay. Five to ten years, right? Right. So, how to design those molecules? So we are doing for synthesis. We are doing evaluation of the uh, those uh, those uh, chemicals, and also we are utilizing the computational chemistry mm-hmm. to predict what kind of molecule will be suitable mm-hmm. for the sustainable society. But this is a very difficult challenge. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So now HFC hydrofluorocarbon is very good substitute for the CFCs to protect the ozone layer. But this will, this is uh, said to be a strong greenhouse gas. But the property is very excellent for the industry. Mm-hmm. So it is very difficult to find out another alternative. So the best best solution to prevent the uh, global warming is the responsible use of those HCFCs. Responsible use means the uh, the most best way is the emission control. Okay. So we have to recycle and recover and uh, reduce the emissions as low as possible or as much as possible. Anyway, mm-hmm. it's the best way to to prevent 
the group of Lord. Okay. Right? Rather than to develop a new alternative. Right. So that's the story. Thanks a lot, Dr. Yamabe. And we were just talking to Dr. Masaaki Yamabe from the National Labs in Japan. Coming up, we'll find out which is our largest island, so stay tuned. Back to Berkeley Grocks, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered why it's difficult to breathe on the top of a mountain? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder why it's harder to breathe on top of a mountain? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. heard that air gets thinner the higher up a mountain you climb. To find out what that really means, let's disappear into thin air and reappear up here on the steep slopes of Mount McKinley at more than 20,000 feet above sea level. Talk about an altitude adjustment. Altitude is how high above sea level an object is. And altitude has everything to do with why we find it harder to breathe on top of a mountain. You see, as altitude increases, the atmospheric pressure increases, meaning there's less oxygen in the usual mixture of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and other gases that make up the air we breathe. Less oxygen in the air means less oxygen enters our lungs. As a result, less oxygen enters our blood. So our heart has to pump harder to deliver what little oxygen there is to the rest of the body, especially the brain. Matter of fact, human bodies are so dependent on oxygen that the effects of altitude sickness can be felt as low as 7,000 feet. And in addition to breathlessness, symptoms may also include headache, fatigue, nausea, swelling to the extremities, and even the brain. I'd say it's high time to get another altitude adjustment back to lower ground. Thanks for helping us take today's show to new heights and for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's National Education Program, Making Science Make Sense.
Oh, thank you very much, Everyday Science Lady. You know what? Your sultry explanations of those fun-filled facts always take my breath away. Ooh la la. And now here's the governor with the answer to last week's question of the week. This week's question of the week is, what is a heavy water? Is it really, really heavy, heavy water? I wonder. If you know the answer or just think you know the answer, email us at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but at least you know it's not hot air. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie.